This morning's sermon is on Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And it talks about what our obligations to human authority and government are. Um, like I said, I preach this at the Avalon. And actually, I just want to give quick props to, uh, to Ray and Jim and Larry and Dolores and all the other people that have helped me over there over the time. Um, but I got to preach this a few weeks ago at the Avalon. Uh, but because you can't preach for 40 minutes or 50 minutes, however long this is going to wind up running, I had to cut it down a lot. And um, there was a lot of stuff that in the course of doing the, the study on this, I could couldn't get into there because of the time, because I didn't want to, you know, have a bunch of people going. So, <laughs> so this week I'm really happy to be able, you know, like when I was given the opportunity to do this, it was great. I was like, great, I got to, you know, I had this material. I can actually hopefully do the justice to the text I wasn't able to do there. Um, so before we get to this morning's text, I kind of have to back up a little bit from Romans uh, chapter 13 to back up a tad to kind of set the context in order first. Um, the section in Romans starts all the way back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 which are really the introduction for chapter, two, uh, chapter 12 all the way to the beginning of chapter 15. And it's this. Uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Actually, before we go there, let's pray for a second. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have given us, that you haven't left us alone to wander and grope about in the dark for truth, but have given it to us that we might know who you are, and we might know you and the things that you want us to know. Give us understanding of the text, and for me, that I might preach it in a way that ministers grace to the hearers and glorifies you, and that I might not explain it or apply it beyond what it rightfully belongs to be done. In the name of our only Savior of men, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, that's all nice, but what does it mean to do this? How do we present our bodies as a living sacrifice? How are we supposed to be so that we don't conform ourselves to this world? The short answer is to submit your will to that of God. The Bible often uses the illustration of a slave to their master to make the point when it speaks of total submission to the will of another. Well, what follows in the text in chapter 12 are some kind of nice pithy examples of what he's talking about and how we're to be conformed to the will of God rather than the world. And that's what God writes here by the hand of Paul to us. To summarize the remainder of chapter 12, um, verses 3 through 8 talk about that we shouldn't be puffed up with ourselves and we've been given gifts by the Holy Spirit and we ought to use those gifts that God has given us. Uh, verses 9 through 13 are talking about how love should be genuine. Uh, we should hate evil, love good. We should like the brethren and be diligent in serving the Lord. We should rejoice in hope, be patient in adversity, continuing in prayer. We should give to the needs of the Christian brethren and be given a hospitality. Verses 14 through 21 mostly tell us how to deal with difficult people. Now, this morning's sermon covers what our obligations are to the government. In Romans chapter 13, verses one through seven. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur punishment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to evil. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good 
and you will have his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carry out, carries out God's wrath on he who does evil. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only for the sake of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending continually to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So let's work our way from, uh, through the text. Verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Or to put it in plain layman's terms, obey the law of the land, play by the rules. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 state it this way. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Well, you might say the government makes some really stupid laws, and I don't like them. Well, as it says in the rest of the verse, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. I don't know about you, but do you want to resist something that God has put into place? Isn't that kind of like one of the definitions of sin? You know, he says, don't do this, and we shouldn't do that. So we ought to submit ourselves to the ordinances and regulations of the laws of the land, whether it be the local or the state or the federal, whether we like them or not. Because God put the leaders that made the laws, he, he put them there. And he said we're supposed to obey the leaders that, we put, that, that he put there. Well, but what if the governmental law, uh, governmental law allows you to do something that's contrary to what God has said in the word? Can we do those things that God has disallowed because the government permits it? No. If God's law says no, then we can't do that thing, even if the human government allows it. Or on the opposite side of that coin, if God's law says we must do something and human government says we can't, then we still must do what God says anyway. If we're, punishing for, if we're punished for doing what God says in his word, then we are to do it, uh, that God says that we're supposed to do it, then so be it. We would be in good company with many saints who have suffered in that way. But in that God's law, overriding man's law, can be seen in that God's law is over man's law, much like the state law is over local law. If the local law allows for something, or is silent on the matter, but the state law says you can't do that, then you can't do it. For example, many of you will remember at least part of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar had set up this huge golden idol, and when certain music was played, everybody was supposed to fall down and worship the idol. Or they, they, the punishment for that was to be cast into the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being proper Jews, when confronted with this, they wouldn't worship the idol because it's, well, they were good Jews and it was prohibited by the second commandment, which is, you know, we shouldn't bow down to idols. And so they responded in verse 18 of Daniel chapter 3 is, O king, we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image that you have set up. And you probably know the rest of the story, how they were delivered from punishment. But the key thing here is that they knew that when push came to shove, you obey God even when it means disobeying the government, no matter what it costs you personally. Also, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin, 
having been brought in for preaching Christ in the temple. And the Sanhedrin had told them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And well, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. On the other hand, when man's law does not conflict with God's law, which is most of the time that we're going to run into for now, you follow man's law, whether it be that you need a permit for this or that, or regulations that it's for this or that, taxes, fees, licenses, or even an absurdly low speed limit on a steep hill with no obstructions, a wide road where you could clearly safely do 45, you still do 25. <laughs> even though there's some seemingly stupid laws in the books, many times there are some truly good reasons behind some of the laws that seem really obtuse. It's just sometimes we're not privy to the details as to why the law was put in that place to begin with. Either way, you obey the law of the land. But what about if you have a despotic ruler or like in a dictatorship? Or how about leaders we really don't like because we disagree with them on just about everything? For a random example, I'll pull out of the air here. Perhaps you disagree with the president. <laughs> But he was still instituted and ordained by God to be there. Consider a moment when the book of Romans was written, okay? It was during the reign of the notorious Emperor Nero, you know, the guy fiddling with Rome while it burned, you know? Nero, who would soon be persecuting Christians in about six to eight years from when this was written. Yeah, him. Since he was in power when the book of Romans was written, you can kind of assume that Paul meant to include even this guy that I'm sure that he didn't like. So, even if the ruler is downright evil, you still have to obey them. Well, why? Because, well, first of all, the Bible says so, which is kind of enough in itself. But even if you look at it from a pragmatic perspective, it still makes a lot of sense. For example, you can kind of look at the time in Iraq uh, before we overthrew the before we threw over uh, Saddam's regime. For a while afterwards, there was lots of anarchy and there was warlords and infighting and all this other stuff. So while Saddam's regime was clearly evil, a leadership vacuum can often be a whole lot worse than that. For another example, Jesus, while he was on earth, obeyed the authorities even when they were unjust to him. Uh, in John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, he's speaking with Pilate, who Jesus knows is about to sentence him to be put to death by crucifixion. So Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answers him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So Jesus, who himself is God, is submitting himself to the government which was instituted by God. So, you know, from a God's, you know, given God's sovereignty, looking at it this way, it really only makes sense that he would submit. So even an unjust or evil ruler or an unjust situation, or a leader you really dislike, is still no excuse to not submit to them. You obey the law. Going back to the, you know, Romans chapter 13, verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur punishment. In order to maintain order, any government must punish those that break the law, or anarchy is going to result, as people aren't stupid, they're going to eventually figure out that the law has no teeth. And they, as such, wouldn't have to pay attention to it. 
So government ultimately has the power to do a few things. They have the power to take your money, your stuff, your freedom, or your life. And any person over whom it governs, over it governs in order to bring about obedience to the law. So, firstly, resisting human laws risks encourage, uh, incurring that punishment for the human law requires for breaking it. But even if you manage to avoid the consequences of breaking a man's law, because maybe you can outwit the police or whoever else is looking, would be looking after you, you still must remember who instituted the government that you're disobeying. Uh, when it comes to God, he sees everything. And while you may be able to avoid punishment here because perhaps the law didn't catch you doing it, God will make sure that justice is done in the end. So even though a cop probably won't pull you over for doing five miles over the speed limit, it's still over the speed limit. It's still breaking the law. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to evil. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Some people tend to be afraid of the police. If you don't want to be afraid of the police, don't be doing the thing that they would get you for. And there'll be no problem. Um, as a driver, do you want to not have your pulse quicken when you see a cop on the side of the road? If you're not speeding, there's nothing to be aware, to be afraid of. Or don't be talking on your hands-free cell phone. Uh, do you not want to be afraid of the IRS? Make sure to promptly and fully pay your taxes. But sometimes the law isn't something we're supposed not to do, but something you were supposed to do. An example, as I've been convinced, that annoying as the building code and inspection requirements of the town of Wappingers are, I am going to follow them. I had a recent case where I just tore down a wall and found an electric wire I wasn't expecting to find in there, and now on Monday I'm going to the building department to find out what I need to do. But anyway, but the thing is, I'm going to follow the law. So as a result, I don't fear the building inspector or my insurance company who could refuse the claim because it wasn't properly inspected or running into a trouble getting a certificate, certificate of occupancy when I eventually go to sell my house, as the previous owner of my house did. And some of the things I've found have since have been rather frightening. So I don't see the building department or the inspector as my adversary, as some people do. It does prevent me, for example, from putting an electrical socket in my bathroom because I don't want to have to pay for all the fees and everything for something that will cost me about 15 bucks. But, and so while it's frustrating and annoying and eh, I wait and I do the right thing rather than doing it legally now. So, but obeying the law is also a, a good way to not bring shave, shame upon the Savior. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he speaks about submitting to human authority. And he continues in verse 15 with, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The context surrounding this verse is that doing good here is submitting to the ordinances of man. We should obey the law because, among other reasons, we don't want to give people excuses to blaspheme Christ because we got busted. How much shame is brought on Christ because preachers and other Christians get caught up in some legal thing or another, whether it's because they didn't pay their taxes or defrauded in some business dealings or whatever else. Ultimately, we really don't want to bring shame upon Christ's name. So we ought to obey the law to, to take that away from the people that would do it. Verse 4. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on he who does evil. This is why if you do things that are illegal in whatever form, you should be afraid. Because 
if and when the law finds you out, you can be in a lot of trouble. The government doesn't have the authority to punish its citizens for nothing. It has the, exercise, the authority to exercise it against those who would break its laws, much as God has the authority to punish those who break his laws. God has given them that authority, believe it or not, as a gift to his creation, to the people he created so that it would help constrain evil in a world of sinful human beings. Now, if the government is unjust on that great day, they will be called to account for the way they have governed and for their stewardship of the resources that have been entrusted to them. So we therefore should pray for them. They might, might govern, right, govern rightly and that they might do things in a way so that they bring glory to God and allow us to live peaceful lives. Verse 5. Therefore, one must be in a subjection, not only for the sake of wrath, but also for the sake of the conscience. The word conscience here is kind of a compound word. Con means with, science means knowledge. So it's kind of like with knowledge, sort of like in Spanish you have con queso. Con is with and queso is cheese, so you get with cheese. Anyway, <laughs> so when we do wrong, we do it with knowledge that it's wrong. The conscience is this impartial judge that sits in the back of your mind, and it really only speaks to that which is right and wrong. It never says things like, you can't wear those shoes with that belt, or you really want to put mayonnaise on that ham sandwich. It, it speaks only to morality. When faced with a moral choice, it will tend to guide you to what is right, or if you've already done wrong, it'll tend to let you know it. Our consciences may not be perfect all the time, but we can train it by study of the word, because the, the word will educate our conscience so that it will work properly. So for one who is trying to live a life that's pleasing to God, it is a wonderful asset. For those who aren't, it is a frustrating source of guilt. So while we obey the law because we don't want to pay the consequences of breaking the law, we should also obey because we don't want to offend our consciences. Because we, we want our consciences to do the work that they were originally designed by God to fulfill, which is to correctly tell us what is right and what is wrong. The conscience is, as Romans chapter 2, verse 15 explains, the law of the Lord written on our hearts. So the thing is, if we tell our consciences to shut up long enough about something, eventually it will stop speaking to us about it, and that's not a good thing. We want to obey God, and a malfunctioning conscience is not as helpful as it could be. God also went through the trouble to put the consciences in us so we would understand and be reminded of something that's really important. At the core, we are not good people. We're not mostly good or more good than bad. We're bad people. Jesus was speaking, uh, was speaking that we should ask God for the things we need. Jesus responds with, if you then who are evil... He was speaking to his disciples then. He called them evil. And you know what? So are we. We deceive people and that makes us liars. We lust and it makes us adulterers. We hate people and it makes us murderers. We swear and it makes us blasphemers. We borrow and liberate things and it makes us thieves. We don't help people that God puts in our way. And more generally, we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. We do evil things and break God's law. And even... If we're saved, we still do things that we know are wrong. We still sin. Evil is still with us. Now, it's one thing to know this, but it's another to understand the consequences. Much as an earthly ruler bears the responsibility to punish those who break earthly laws, God also is the one to punish those who violate his laws. His laws are things like we shall not lie, murder, blaspheme, commit adultery, steal, 
generally, we should love our neighbors as ourselves. We should love God with all our being. So the bad news is not only have we done the things that God told us that we shouldn't do, we have also done the thing, we have not done the things that he told us to do. And so God is properly in line to punish us for those things that we've done or not done, as the case might be. The Bible says that punishment is an eternity of absolute, total, and utter misery and despair. Some people think that, you know, oh, this is hell on earth. Well, if you go to hell, it's, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's hot, there's fire, it's dark, and there's no cool water to give relief. Uh, there's lots of pain. You think your aches and pains here are bad? It's worse, and there's no morphine, Percocets, Vicodins, Aspirins, Ibuprofens, or even the children's Tylenol there. It's dark. And it's incredible despair because as unbearable as it's been for as long as you've been there, there's an unending supply of more. No hope for the relief of the long ages of eternity yet to come. I hope this sounds sort of like hell because that's what it is. But the thing is, is that it's much worse than even I've described. And the thing is, everyone here deserves to go there because we've broken God's laws that we knew. And depending upon when we got saved and everything, a lot of times we, we might not have even cared that we sinned against God. So he's got this good to, you know, he's got us to rights, guilty lawbreakers in his court. He's got every, every bit of evidence he needs because he saw you do it. So we have no excuse. What could we even attempt to reply at the stack of the things that he's seen us do? A guilty verdict. We just sit us there waiting for the gaping maw of hell, waiting to swallow us up. But the thing here is, is that, you know, I've been saved for about six years or so. This still blows my mind even now. Though we did all these terrible things to him, and figuratively, or maybe even sometimes literally, spit in his face in rebellion against him, he loved us. And that he provided a way that we can escape the judgment that we deserve. Amen. In our court case, we're guilty, dead to rights. The thing is that we don't want the punishment. We need somebody to take the punishment for us, to pay the fine for our crimes against God, because we can't. Not even a little bit. What God did was to send his son, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, to be born into the world of the Virgin Mary. And unlike what we've done, he followed every law of God to the T. He suffered and died on the cross for us to take our place, a substitute acceptable to God on our behalf, and rose again on the third day. So on the day of judgment, we can, instead of being thrown into hell, we can go free and enjoy paradise with God for eternity. So not only do we not get the punishment we deserve, we get this incalculable gift of eternal bliss with God. He could have just said, hey, you don't have to go to hell and just you know, annihilated us and we just go away. But he's given us the gift of eternal life with him. And while we're here, he's even given us his Holy Spirit to work in us, to help us to be conformed to the image of Christ and to live a life pleasing to him. He's put two conditions on this forgiveness, which are sort of two sides of the same coin, really, but it's easier to describe as two. First, you have to understand that God is right and you were wrong. You've done wrong and offended God and that that's a bad thing. And you are sorry for doing so. Not sorry because you'd be going to hell as criminals are, you know, they're sorry because they're going to jail because they were found guilty. It's real contrition. Sorry as you would be to a spouse or a loved one for, for having hurt them in some way. Sorry in a way which will cause you to strive to do the right thing going forward. It's called, it's called repentance. Secondly, 
you must believe in what Christ has done and who he is. Believing here means trusting in Christ's sacrifice to you is sufficient to make you right with God. It means believing that Jesus is the Son of God, and as such, he has the authority to command us to do things. And as a result, we ought to obey. It means trusting his promises to us that he's able to do the things that he has promised, as to not trust in this would really be call him a liar. But this is the good news, that while we were yet God's enemies, he rescued us and gave us an out. And we get to spend eternity with him. And while we're in this life, we get the Holy Spirit to help us out. So God has given us a conscience so that we can understand our own nature. And so we want to keep the conscience working properly, so we should obey the law to keep it so. Verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending continually to this very thing. In this and the verse that follows, there are two different words, and they're translated kind of inconsistently from translation to translation, and I struggled a bit to try to figure out exactly what is he talking about. I had to go to the Greek a bit and apologize in advance if I pronounced the Greek words wrong. But uh, anyway, the Greek word here that they use for taxes is called foros. And uh, it can also be, I've I've also seen it translated as tribute. Um, It'd be the kind of taxes you'd pay to a foreign leader who had conquered your country. It can also be more of an individual assessment on person or property, uh, sort of like a property tax or an income tax. In the days when this was written, the Romans were ruling over Judea, and people hated paying a foreign government taxes to keep them under their rule, sort of like giving somebody lead to make bullets to shoot back at you. Um, But even foreign rulers are due their taxes, and they are sometimes the hardest to follow precisely because of this. the United States has never had to pay tribute, and our policy is usually one of billions of defense, but not a penny for tribute. But anyway, the Pharisees knew that everybody hated paying these taxes to Rome and tried to use this to entrap Jesus over the payment of taxes to Caesar. Uh, Luke 20, 20 through 26 says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So the idea here was that if Jesus told them not to pay their taxes, they could haul him in. So they ask him, Teacher, we know that you speak the truth, and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So they tried to trip him up and were made to look foolish. The relevant piece here that I'm trying to get to is that Jesus said, pay your taxes. It doesn't matter whether you like the government to which you pay them. Although, frankly, I don't think it really matters because I don't think I've ever run into a person who likes paying taxes. If you do, let me know. Um, I can increase your joy. You can pay mine. (laughs) But we are to pay taxes to support the authorities that God has put into place over us. They are God's ministers to keep things civil while we're here. An application of this is that we shouldn't be paid under the table, nor should we pay others under the table because the proper taxes aren't going to be paid. 
Likewise, if, you know, if we make improvements to our property that affect our taxes, we should report it because while we don't like paying taxes, we should pay all the taxes to which we're supposed to pay. Uh, verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes, revenue to whom revenue. Let me clear this up a little bit because in English this is a little bit weird. The word taxes here that they use is the one I just described. It's, you know, the property taxes or, you know, income taxes, that kind of stuff. Revenue, or the Greek word that underlies it, telos, is a general toll on goods or travel, sort of like uh, sales taxes or import tariffs or tolls, like in a toll bridge. These are the kind of taxes that the apostle Matthew was charged with collecting before Jesus called him when he was sitting in the uh, receipt of taxes thing. So, like the pharos taxes, we're to pay the telos taxes as well. Jesus did, as an example to us, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. There, they asked Peter if Jesus paid the half-shekel temple tax. And Peter says, yes. And later, Peter speaks with Jesus about the tax, at which point Jesus explains in the text that he really shouldn't have to pay it because of who he is. However, as to not cause offense, Jesus has Peter catch a fish in which... Jesus told him to pay the tax for the both of them with the coin that would be in the mouth of the fish. An application of this tax would be to be wary of, say, when doing things, say, getting discounts for paying in cash that sometimes you can get. As it's usually the reason why you get a discount for paying in cash is so that they don't have to report it uh, or pay the proper sales tax or anything else. So while in that case we're not directly responsible for the taxes, we are kind of participating in somebody else's sin. So... You want to be careful there. So, really, if there's a tax or a fee or a toll, our job as Christians is to pay it if it's required. Um, just thinking about my dad, because my dad was an accountant, so I've had this drilled into me for many years. And uh, I'll try to use the expression and everything else and get the stance right. And I apologize to the people listening by CD, Internet, or tape. But he would look like, pay your taxes. I <laughs> so... The rest of verse 7. Uh, respect to whom respect, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Uh, we also give honor and respect to those to whom it's due. Much like I've heard about the military. You may not respect the man, but you respect the rank. So if you were to be in the military, even if the guy, uh, you just, yeah, it's one of those kind of guys, it's still yes, sir, and no, sir. Or if you're in a, ju- if you're in a courtroom and you're before the judge, even if you know that the judge is corrupt, even, you say, yes, your honor, no, your honor. Or talking with a cop, it's yes, officer, no, officer. We give proper respect to the office of those we deal with. In Acts chapter 23, Paul actually ran into the wrong end of this before the council uh, to testify of the events when he was almost killed by an angry mob of Jews. Paul had just started his testimony when the high priest commanded one who stood by to strike him on the mouth, to which Paul responds, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, Oh, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So the, even though Paul initially got it wrong here, um, once he realized who he was dealing with, he quotes Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight and agrees that he has spoken improperly to the high priest. So, given Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, we also probably shouldn't speak evil of our leaders either. 
In fact, 1 Peter 2.17 says we should honor the emperor, or in our case, that would be the president, as much as it may pain some of us. So again, the quality of the person filling the role here is not the issue. It's the position that they hold. If they have a position to which they are due honor and fear, we should give it to them. And we should strive especially so if we don't like them or vehemently disagree with them. So not only should we not curse our leaders, we are instead supposed to pray for our leaders too. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 say, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That said, we are allowed, however, inasmuch as the law allows it, to question, appeal, protest, or beseech the government for things. Uh, in Acts 25, Paul, realizing that the system was not going to afford him a fair trial in Jerusalem because of the Jews, he appeals to Caesar. Likewise, in Daniel chapter 1, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah didn't want to eat the king's food and defile themselves with it. And as such, they appealed to the chiefs to allow them to eat vegetables instead. So we should take advantage of the freedoms we do have, whether it be town meetings, voting, legal forms of protest, letter writing, communicating with our leaders, and generally whatever legal means we have to participate in government so that we can try to convince them to do what is right and what would you know, be pleasing to God and what would be good before God. So people may blaspheme Christ because they don't like the things you do, but if you're doing what is right according to man's law and more importantly, God's law, if, if they blaspheme God, that's really on them. But if it's because you aren't behaving properly, you're participating in that sin. Another way to think about it is at any point in your day, you should be able to credibly witness to whoever it is that's around you, assuming the circumstances permit it. You can't really credibly witness through a car window to the cop who just pulled you over or perhaps to your defense attorney if you got hauled in for breaking the law or the IRS auditor if you're there because you tried to cheat on your taxes. So we ought to try to do what's always right because, we don't. again, we don't want to bring shame on Christ. So if we're imprisoned because we've been obedient to Christ, then so be it. We're in good company. But at least in this country, that's not happening yet. And praise God for that as long as it lasts. But if we are imprisoned because we were disobedient, we bring shame upon his name. So before I finish, I've spoken a lot about the law today, and I realize that I might have opened up the question of your mind. Aren't you being just a tad legalistic here? Am I saying if you're a criminal, you can't possibly be a Christian? No. Am I saying that Christians who commit crimes cannot possibly be saved? No. These people might want to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith, yes. In the faith, yes. But committing a crime doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. So from the aspect of salvation, no, I'm not being legalistic about this at all. However, God's word clearly states we're supposed to obey human law. So I think I can proclaim with authority we're to obey human law. So we ought to, as our reasonable service to God, obey the law of the land, pay our taxes, and give honor to the persons filling the positions of authority. This way, we don't have to worry about getting into trouble with the government, will help keep our consciences working properly and behaving properly, and people will have no means to blaspheme Christ 
because of our behavior with respect to the law of the land.